Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. Today is Sunday, January 23rd, and my name is Kyle Hayes. I am your host. And joining me, as always, on Peach Pod is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, happy to be here and happy to be in legislative session again with all the exciting opportunities that uh, gives us to talk about Georgia politics in a more substantive way than <laughs> the last campaign season uh, for us often. Yeah, things are starting to move in Atlanta, and we're beginning to see Governor Kemp and Republican leaders lay out some of their priorities. And we're also seeing Democratic leaders lay out their alternative vision for the state. Um, I know we we say it's legislative session, but the 2022 campaign does hang over all of this. Um, so on today's show, we are going to talk about um, some of the latest coming out of legislative session and Governor Kemp's office, including his decision to sue the Joe Biden administration over the Biden administration's rejection of part of a Medicaid waiver proposal. Uh, This is one of the uh, substantively one of the biggest things that Kemp uh, has pursued in in healthcare policy. Um, He also made this a big part of his state of the state address. So we're going to talk about how that stands. We're also going to talk about the governor's budget proposal and and what that means for funding of key programs in the state. Uh, The state is in a much better position financially than it was early in the pandemic, um, but that has opened up uh, a set of contrasting visions from from Governor Kemp and state Democrats about what to do with the state's budget surplus that they're going to have to dole out this legislative session. We're also going to talk about some developments related to the 2022 campaign, including an effort by Democratic power brokers to basically clear most of the primary fields for statewide offices. Um, so I'm going to check in with Luke uh, about his uh, his general argument that competitive primaries are good. Um, the AJC highlighted some examples this week where competitive primaries didn't exactly work out for Democrats. Plus, we'll check in on some other news and notes from Georgia politics, including an effort in athens Clark County to really mess with the uh, local commission districts um, here, in, here in the town where we sit, Luke. But let's start with this stuff with the Medicaid waiver. Um, so on Friday, the uh, Governor Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr announced that they were going to sue the Biden administration because the Biden administration had rejected part of a policy known as a Medicaid waiver, um, which is basically a policy where Governor Kemp is pursuing a limited expansion of Medicaid, basically Medicaid expansion that would only go to a fraction of the number of people who could get coverage under the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion. And the Biden administration rejected two key provisions of this proposal from the Kemp administration. Those are the work requirements and the premiums that are in the plan proposed by Governor Kemp. Um, So this is going to continue to be a significant policy and political issue for the Kemp administration, Luke. Um, And we'll, we'll get to some of the details with the lawsuit here in a second. But I'm mostly struck politically by... Governor Kemp's embrace of healthcare is an issue that he wants to litigate in this uh, upcoming campaign season. He actually made a big deal in his state of the state of improved access to health coverage in the individual insurance market. He was bragging about the ACA, even though he didn't name check the ACA when he did it, but he was bragging about the ACA much in the way that progressives brag about it during his speech. Um, and he was had really sharp language for the Biden administration over this waiver. He called them 
obstructing Georgia's ability to expand healthcare in the state and um, said that the decision from the federal government was a regulatory bait and switch that was going to harm Georgians. What do you think of Governor Kemp's focus on on healthcare, an issue that that Democrats have uh, traditionally wanted to highlight in state politics? I think Kemp is focusing on healthcare because he has to, because Republicans got demolished in 2018. And uh, the principal conversation that Republicans had so much trouble with that was substantive was healthcare. Obviously, Trump was overhanging the whole thing. But as far as the substantive conversations go, and at least some of the exit polls, healthcare was a big issue for a lot of voters. And the thing I always put at the forefront of my mind when we're talking about this issue in Georgia, and especially how uh, Governor Kemp has chosen to pursue healthcare policy in Georgia is that all of this is entirely a fabricated argument and a fabricated fight because Governor Kemp could go to the legislature tomorrow and say, hey, let's just expand Medicaid. And that would be cheaper. It would cover more people. And it would, you know, just prevent all of this stupid fighting. And really for him would be a great political win because he would take Democrats' biggest policy you know, (laughs) stick that we have to beat over the Republicans' heads in the state of Georgia when it comes to state politics and just completely take it away from us. And we would no longer be able to talk about it. And it would be something that he would not be going out on a political limb anymore uh, like it would have been had he, you know, been uh, Governor Deal's shoes where very few Republican states had expanded Medicaid. There's a lot of Republican states that have expanded Medicaid. They've It's been fine. The world has not caught on fire. There has, you know, not been even negative political consequences for the Republicans who did that. So it's like every argument that Republicans have had to be like we shouldn't expand Medicaid because of X has just been disproven. And and in fact, in Ohio, Ohio was one of the early Republican states that embraced Medicaid expansion. And if you look at the politics of that state, Republicans have become much more entrenched in Ohio, a state that was much more competitive nationally in, in prior decades. Um, you know, they, they run that state now. Yeah, completely. And it's, it's one of those things that to me is is it's just so interesting reading their lawsuit, reading Kemp's statements and other Republican statements because it, it shows somewhat of the effectiveness of the political strategy that you know they can look like oh we're fighting to expand healthcare in Georgia but really what they're doing is keeping up an ideological battle that does not re- add any value to Georgians' lives as compared to the very easy thing they could do that would not require them suing the federal government, would not require them to, you know, come up with pretzeling logic about, you know, these ins- these giant new policies they want to create. They could just do something that's significantly cheaper and would cover more people and has already been adopted in many, many conservative states. And I think that is really important to put in the foreground of any conversation about what Kemp is doing on healthcare policy, because uh, you know, if if Democrats are unsuccessful in doing that, then he may be successful creating the perception among some Georgians that he's doing something, but he's really not. <laughs> I mean, he's it, it's it's a I understand why he's doing it to not look like you're doing something on healthcare would be very very bad for Kemp, but I you know. But knowing Abrams like I do and knowing that she is a good communicator, I will be surprised if this is not something that she's 
able to easily eviscerate him on is just saying, you know, dude, just expand Medicaid. It's not that hard. Yeah. I mean, to me, there's an interesting framing of this that what they're doing is strikes me as not very conservative at all. I mean, they're wasting taxpayer dollars on a lawsuit where they would argue that if they won the lawsuit, they would create this massive new bureaucracy hiring more than a hundred new state employees to set up a bunch of red tape for accessing health coverage in the state. And they would do all of that to cover a fraction of people who could be covered under the ACA's Medicaid expansion. Um, And they would pay nearly five times more per person to achieve that policy outcome because of this ideological uh, fight that they want to have about health care. I mean, none of it strikes me as very conservative. I mean, it is in a faux way, because if you read their lawsuit, a lot of it is about, well, this program is so important, and the way that we've structured it is so important, because people who are on government assistance don't understand how to pay bills or have monthly obligations, and that they need, you know, to have a premium payment that they're used to paying, so they understand how, you know, private market health insurance works. I mean, it's not that complicated. People understand pills. And so you don't need to make folks jump through all of these loopholes that significantly wealthier people don't have to jump through because they either get health insurance through their job or through the marketplace and they barely think about, you know, another uh, monthly charge that just comes off their credit card automatically. I mean, that that's a huge part of this program is them talking about, you know, building personal responsibility in people. And it's just, it's not that difficult. And I, I just don't think that is a policy objective that should be taken seriously because like you said, Kyle, much else of this is not ideologically conservative. And so that that's really the only piece where they have an argument that it is conservative. conservative. Most of this is just Still, for some reason, even though he has not been president for quite some time, trying to not let Obama get a win. <laughs> I mean, it's like I wonder if after Obama dies, if everyone's just going to expand Medicaid so that they, you know they could say it's like, okay, he can't win from this now. Just name it after Trump. Say we're doing Trump's Medicaid expansion. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> now, you know, when when you return to the lawsuit here, there is a possibility that ultimately Georgia will fail in this lawsuit and may make a decision not to expand Medicaid coverage to anyone in the state. Um, basically, what they say in their lawsuit is that they want courts to allow them to do the work requirement in the premium uh, because the state does not have the funding and is not prepared to extend health coverage to as many as 400,000 people in the state. And so by having the work requirement and the premium be a barrier to people actually getting health coverage, only 50,000 or so people in the state are going to get help under the Kemp administration's waiver. And, and the Kemp administration is arguing that that's all that the state can handle at this point, which is complete nonsense. Um, but the outcome here, Luke, if, if they lose this lawsuit is that one of the governor's signature healthcare proposals of this first term may ultimately amount to nothing. He also has a second waiver that deals with the private market that also may be struck down by the Biden administration. Um, you know, what, what do you think the stakes are, are politically if, if both of governor Kemp's signature healthcare policies of his first term are uh, basically nullified by the federal government by the time he's running for reelection? It will be very interesting to see if it is something that Abrams pushes hard in her campaign and to see how Kemp reacts to the either success or failure of, of these programs. I think 
it is something that's good for his base because obviously it is uh, you know for conservative republicans love any governor who's suing the federal government when a democrat's in charge and so i imagine that will be a good you know talking point for him there's like i'm suing the Biden administration for all these reasons um and He's had that talking point since he was secretary of state. Yeah. And so, you know, like he, he, it's, it's old hat for him. Uh, and you know, I, I don't think, unfortunately, healthcare policy is one of those things where everyone is unhappy with the status quo. And so just the fact that he can say he's doing something, I think is going to be valuable for him. If all of this becomes, you know, moot and he loses all these lawsuits, which I I don't know how fast these will move. I'd be kind of surprised, honestly, if they got through the whole system uh, by the time, you know, his election time came around. I I just, you know, it's really up to Democrats to make it clear to the public that this entire discussion is unnecessary and we could be doing something that's cheaper and would cover more people and would not require us to sue the federal government. And all it would take it is the legislature to vote on something that I'm sure if, you know, Kemp came out tomorrow and said, I want to expand Medicaid, that Democrats would line up and be happy to do it. And enough Republicans would get behind their governor and, and give him this political win. Because again, at this point, it would be a political win for him because there's a significant portion of Georgians that are not covered. And it would take away his opponent's principal talking point, at least of the last election, and I imagine it will be an important one, maybe not her principal one, but an important one of this one. And so I, I don't I don't see Kemp having much of a downside with his current strategy, just because uh, so far, you know, Democrats to, to, you know, have campaigned on the ACA and expanding Medicaid since it became policy and uh, have not won statewide uh, on, on, you know, these state elections on, on that campaign yet. But, you know, maybe the third time's the charm. Legally here, Luke, and, I, and I'm going to I'm going to steal your lawyer hat here for a minute and then and then let you take it back and maybe tell me why I'm wrong. But In terms of whether or not this lawsuit could succeed, I I see kind of a couple of different avenues to look at as to why the state could be successful in beating the Biden administration on this. Um, And this is based on some of the arguments that the state makes in their complaint. One of the arguments that the state makes in their complaint is that this was a contractual agreement between the federal and the state government. And it was an agreement that was struck at the end of 2020 And since then, the state has spent a lot of uh, state taxpayer dollars, spent state resources, hired people to work for the state that were beginning to implement this waiver. And um, under the original agreement, the waiver was supposed to go into effect. It was supposed to start going into effect last July um, and and reach a second stage of it this January. Um, So the state is saying they have some uh, what they're describing as reliance interests in that they have spent state resources planning to implement this thing. And now the federal government's kind of pulling the rug out from under them. Another reason that it could be successful is the state maintains that what they're doing with the work requirement is different than what other states have done. And it's notable to think about what other states have done because a uh, federal district court has already ruled that work requirements in Medicaid in other states that put them into effect, that those were illegal when they did that. Um, and Georgia is maintaining that their work requirements are different because they are expanding coverage to 
people that they have no legal obligation to expand coverage to and that they are using the work requirement as a, quote, pathway to coverage rather than a condition of eligibility. Um, and it, you know, if they get in front of a friendly judge, you could imagine that maybe that argument has some some water to it. But some reasons why this may not work out, um, returning to that, what the U.S. District Court did with other work requirements, the courts could decide that Georgia's work requirement is no different and that it's illegal for the same reasons that the others were illegal. Um, but also included in the waiver was, you know, under this argument that the state struck a contract with the federal government to do this waiver, a provision of that contract allows states, allows CMS to revoke this waiver at any time if they want to. Um, they do have to give the state an administrative hearing and a chance to argue their case. Um, but the contract, at least to me, appears pretty clear that the the federal government is within their right to revoke this waiver if they want to. Um, among those arguments or, or any others you can think of, Luke, any sense of where this case might go? Well, I know you said legally, but again, I just have to make the political point that Georgia would not have to spend much of or any of that money had they just expanded Medicaid. <laughs> so again, you know, that, that is my, my principal frustration as a taxpayer in the state of Georgia, uh, that, you know, or we're wasting our resources on this elaborate program so that we just don't do the thing that many other conservative states have done, which is expand Medicaid under the ACA. So that, that's, not, that's my principal <laughs> thought. And um, not only, not only that, but there are, in federal legislation that's been passed since Democrats took over Washington, there are even more incentives for the state to expand Medicaid. Not only would the federal government pay for more than 90% of expansion, but they would basically give the state additional money to adopt Medicaid expansion at this point. The feds are basically throwing money at the state of Georgia and begging them to expand Medicaid, and the state still refuses to do it. Right. And but to to the legal point, and I will say I I have not had the privilege of suing the federal government nor you know having a case like this and so uh, I am not familiar with with all of it, but I I could see you know the current composition of courts, I could see like you said them saying, "Yeah, this is a work requirement just like the other ones and this is just an elaborate scheme to get around the laws of both Medicaid and you know, the Medicaid expansion and not accepting that argument from, from them or, you know, trying, trying it out uh, again. I think it's, it's interesting to me, the fact that this is a workaround of the pure express uh, expansion. And I, I, you know, if I had, again, had to guess because I have not had a chance to, to read all of their arguments and read all the cases they cite, uh, I would, I would think that that argument would not stand up because it's, you know, creating or if work requirements under Medicaid for people who are eligible uh, does not work. I, I think, you know, making someone eligible via a work requirement might not. But again, I I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that argument plan, pans out. Um, and overall, I, I think this case just represents a admission by Kemp and Republicans in Georgia that they have been wrong on health care policy and that they are trying 
to do something that they can say to their voters, aha, we did not expand Medicaid. We did our own fancy Republican thing. Uh, because if they thought that the current status quo of healthcare in Georgia was acceptable, they would just do nothing. And so the fact that they're pretzeling themselves and creating this expensive, inefficient policy is an admission that the Republican solution to healthcare does not work and that things need to change. And so I, I think that is where Democrats should focus a lot of their time uh, talking about what Kemp is doing and healthcare and just recognize that is effectively what this entire lawsuit, this entire waiver process is admitting is that they know something needs to be done and they just are refusing to do the right thing for very, very political reasons. And, you know, how it works out legally will be very interesting for me <laughs> to see. And I'll read those cases and, and be fascinated by them. But for, you know, the longer term political arguments, I think that is uh, on the back burner. So let's move on and talk about the budget here. We're recording on Sunday, January 23rd. And the first couple of weeks of the legislative session have been um, mostly focused on the budget in the sense that Governor Kemp laid out some of his top line budget priorities in his state of the state address. And then uh, the, the entire last week, um, the legislature was in budget hearings, uh, hearing from agency heads about the specifics of the governor's budget proposal. And just to give listeners a sense of kind of what some of the top line dynamics here are with the budget. So state revenue has rebounded really significantly from the beginning of the pandemic. In part, that's because the state never really went through a long-term economic shutdown. Um, you know, economic activity has really nearly returned to pre-pandemic levels in this state. Um, and that means state revenue is up. The state has also been the recipient of uh, a significant amount of federal funds that has supported a lot of functions of the state during the pandemic. And so that leaves a lot of room in the budget for the state to start funding some of its programs at levels that they did prior to the pandemic. And so that's kind of what you see in the governor's budget proposal. Uh, the education funding formula, the QBE formula, he's proposing that that be fully funded. Um, the per person spending in the state is mostly restored to where it was prior to the pandemic. Um, but that still leaves, I mean, if you've been listening to us or other people talk about the budget for the last few years, that still leaves us in a position where per person spending in this state is lower than it was during 2008, the last year prior to the Great Recession, and prior to uh, about a decade and a half of pretty systemic underfunding of a lot of functions of state government. Um, all of these figures come from analysis of the budget by the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. And so, Luke, what that also raises is a contrast between Democrats and Republicans about what to do with a healthier state budget. And to Governor Kemp's credit, he is proposing pay raises for teachers, pay raises for state employees, fully funding education, um, and restoring a lot of the funding that was cut in 2020 and 2021. But he also wants to use a big chunk of that surplus to give income tax refunds to everyone in the state, whereas Democrats used their state of the state response to argue that more of that surplus should be going into healthcare and education, you know, Medicaid expansion that we've already talked about, but improving education funding beyond just funding the formula and funding other programs that the state has underfunded that support people with low incomes in the state. What do you think of that 
contrasting vision between uh, what Democrats and Republicans believe should be done with the state surplus? And and do you think that that's going to be a big issue this legislative session? You know, this is an interesting place for us to be in because I remember and I was really curious how this would play out when the pandemic started and uh, the budget really contracted and we thought we were going into a recession long term. Kemp had this very interesting statement where he was like, oh, this is a great opportunity for us to learn to, you know, do more with less or whatever, you know, and that he was he seemed a little overly excited, in my opinion, for the, you know, the government's budget to be contracting so much because we were going into a recession. I had forgotten uh, about that. Yeah. And, you know, again, you said to his credit, I will say to his credit, he's not doing that. Like, he's not using this as like a draconian social experiment of like, haha, we ran the state with, you know, almost no money last year. So let's do it again. You know, like he is pumping more money into some of the places in Georgia's budget that just frankly have been underfunded for a long time and that Georgia really got behind where it had been when you and I were growing up in the state where Georgia actually paid its teachers pretty well by comparison, actually paid its state employees pretty well by comparison. And so any progress towards doing that, I think is really great because, you know, no one goes working for the government to get rich. But I think it needs to be a place where people can make a very a comfortable living, especially for teachers, because children are the future. <laughs> I mean, it's not a, you know it's a it's a cliche, but it's true. It's like you need the best people that you can possibly find to teach Georgia's children in the future, and that's going to make our state very prosperous going forward. And without investing in that, uh, you can't get anything else. And so, I mean, and it's not even just that it's a competitiveness issue. Cause if you want people to take these jobs, the pay has to compete with what they can get in the private market or even in other States. Cause there's lots of States and <laughs> you can be teachers and you can be a teacher anywhere. And so I know I have a lot of friends who are teachers. I, I tend to like, uh, like my teachers growing up. And so I still, you know, talk to some of them and, uh, you know, keep up with them. And it's just, it's hard. It's hard. It's been a hard couple of years for teachers it's always hard to be a teacher, but it's been incredibly hard the past two years. And so I, I think it's a good move by him to focus so much on giving more money to teachers. And I, I'm pleasantly surprised by how aggressive those moves are. The thing that I hope that we don't do, and that at least at this moment, Kemp has not committed to doing anything here, is cut taxes. Because while our economy is doing much better right now, and it's rolling like gangbusters, there's been a lot of stimulus from the federal government. There's a lot of opportunities for saving in a crisis because during the pandemic, a lot of people weren't spending money like they usually do. And and so a lot of people for, for both the stimulus and for just lifestyle changes, were able to save a lot more money. And so I just hope that Kemp in the you know budget uh, numbers crunchers that he's hired are spending a lot of time thinking about okay like how do we keep this level of spending up and even if they're not you know looking for ways to dramatically expand beyond this point which they probably need to I think that is actually the most responsible thing to do and I would hope that that is a lot of what they're focused on and I, and I hope keeping the tax rates where they are which are pretty low uh, is is an idea. Now, this is where I'm actually going to go in a slightly different direction than um, the the Democratic response. 
As far as tax rebates go, my understanding is that they are $250 for a single filer and $500 for joint filers. And, you know, that's, I think that's fine. Like, I think, I think that is a good use of this money if it's not going to prevent us from staying sustainable in the future because we have seen that direct payments to people is very, a very good policy and has helped people uh, weather this crisis and has uh, done a lot for, you know, curbing child poverty and poverty in general. And, you know, since this is not, a regressive tax where, you know, the, the people who, uh, pay the highest taxes and make the highest incomes are going to get a bunch of money and the lower income folks are not like it's across, you know, there's probably, there's definitely a way you could make this more progressive, but this is not a, you know, blatantly regressive policy and a handout to a bunch of rich people. Uh, you know, it's everybody getting the same thing, which is, is better than the alternative. I think it's fine because, that will help a lot of people in tax season. The time where you actually get the refunds, I think would be a good time for folks to have more money in their pocket because that's probably about the time a lot of the federal benefits are rolling out or the people who uh, have you know, been really, really responsible and saved uh, that money will start running out of it. So I, I kind of have a slightly different perspective um, than... The Democratic response on that, because I think that is a potentially good use of this money, because we are still recovering from the pandemic, um, and it might not be the best use, but I don't think it's a bad use, and and that that's uh, probably gonna get me in trouble with somebody. I don't, I don't know who yet, but <laughs> it yeah. might get you in trouble with me. I mean, okay, I, all right, let's I, do I, it. I mean, yeah. I I disagree. I think that, um, you know, I think if you had targeted your tax rebates to people with lower incomes, maybe by maybe by adopting a state earned, earned income tax credit to give more tax relief to lower income people who need it. You know, I think that may be an acceptable alternative to what the governor has proposed. I mean, the the rebates, as I understand them, will go to every tax filer in the state, which means wealthy people who have been pretty well off during the pandemic and who have probably recovered the most given the way that Georgia's economy has recovered, they're going to get that 500 bucks too, or that 250 bucks too. And there are people who really don't need it. Um, but I, I do think that it is a missed opportunity. You know, I think the earned income tax credit would be a good way to use that funding. I also think a good way to use that funding would be to bolster funding for state programs that can do more per dollar than just one person getting some funding can. Well, yeah. and to be clear, I don't disagree with what you just said at all. Right. Um, and I, th I think earned, earned income tax credit would definitely be a good uh, thing for Georgia to adopt. I'm kind of surprised they haven't, um, since that was the you know big Republican thing in the in the you know 2010s. But yeah, I I, I just think that out of everything they could have done with this money, this isn't the worst thing. <laughs> and yeah, so I'm guy grading on a curve there, and I, I agree means testing this some uh, probably would have been better, but I I don't think it's the worst thing that they could have done, and that I think there'll be far more people who benefit from getting this money than don't truly need it. Now, the thing that I think that raises though, is this is, if you, if you're just glancing at the headlines about this news, this is a pretty rosy report for the state budget. And I think that that puts legislative Democrats in a position where 
you know, generally they would be pretty safe if they just accepted this as the right path forward. You know, I, within the legislature, you've heard Democrats in the legislature say that sometimes there are hard feelings and retribution if you vote against the budget. Um, and that traditionally, you know, voting against the budget has been a tough thing to do. Um, and some Democratic lawmakers have decided in that dynamic to just try to fight for small improvements here, or small improvements there, instead of outright opposition to the vision that this budget represents. Luke, do you think that legislative Democrats ought to change their calculation about what to do with this budget? I mean, there are a few Democrats in the state legislature that are running for statewide office. You have Jen Jordan running for attorney general. Uh, she's in the state Senate. You have Eric Allen, a state representative running for lieutenant governor. Matthew Wilson is a state representative. He's running for insurance commissioner. Um, you know, we have seen, I think most notably in recent times, people remember Jason Carter's speech about the Hope Scholarship being a big part of his launching of his gubernatorial campaign back in 2014. Do you think that some of those lawmakers may use the budget process and legislative session to elevate a different vision uh, for Georgia? I think they should. I I think Kemp is making it extraordinarily hard for them because he's used this budget very effectively to target some of the biggest problems in the state. And the argument that I heard from Beverly, you know, is basically like, well, he could be doing more, <laughs> you know? And so it's like, it's, it's, it's harder to make contrast when what you're really saying is, you know, governor Kemp's doing the right things with his budget, but he could do more with it. It's like, that's just not a dramatic rallying cry for Georgians to, uh, shake up, you know, who they've been voting for or to work incredibly hard to elect, you know, Abrams or anybody else who's running just so that they can put more money towards these things. And I, I think really selling the difference that would come with Democrat governance is the thing that Democrats both in session and Democrats who are not currently elected, like Stacey Abrams and Charlie Bailey, who are running for office, you know, need to talk about how governance in Georgia would be different, how we'd be pushing the state in different directions, because getting into the nitty-gritty of budgets, while you and I love that, I don't think a lot of people vote for that reason, when, especially when the disagreement is how many billions or millions of dollars you're putting into a program. You know, I, it's just harder because especially when we are actually fully funding QBE, you know, getting into a debate about, well, we should change the formula for QBE. Do, you know, so people just stop listening to you. And so I, I think this has been a struggle for Democrats. I feel like if we play audio from every single, you know, state, uh, state of the state, res you know, response, we would say these same things, but it's just very hard to build that contrast. And I don't think we've found it yet. And this year Kemp has made it really hard because he's not just funding one or two of the things we usually talk about. He's funding all of them and it's a lot more money than, probably they expected uh be you know with us coming out of a pandemic and it being brian kemp as governor and so i, I just think that that is going to be a struggle to find those contrast points on this policy there's lots of other policies that kemp has talked about in the state of the state that will be easier for us to uh, contrast with 
Yeah, to give you a sense, the actually the true takeaway line from uh, Leader Beverly's response to the state of the state was really a contrast on COVID and, and the governor's gun legislation proposal. Um, he said, even now, the governor seems more interested in getting guns in hands rather than shots in arms. Um, but Luke, <laughs> I laugh because this brings me back to my eternal complaint about the democratic response to the state of the state address. It's boring. It's boring, but also it is forever, I think, a missed opportunity that it is given in sort of a in a press conference room by one person with no crowd, with no sort of energy. Though. It's a pretty blue backdrop with the seal of the state of Georgia. But um, I think that raises for me this other question I wanted to ask you, which is, to me... I would I could have seen a lot of value to Stacey Abrams giving the democratic response to the state of the state doing it much in the way that she gave the democratic response to one of Trump's state of the union addresses in a room full of people with a crowd and an outline of her contrasting vision for the state and I think that that could have been useful both in the short term of showing a democratic resistance to the particulars of this budget, but I also think it could be, could have been useful for Stacey Abrams campaign because she has become a national political figure. A lot of her attention recently has been focused on voting rights issues in Washington. And and that is attention well spent. I think, I think that's a very important issue. Although in the last couple of weeks that the focus on that issue has sort of resulted in a a little spat between her and the Biden administration over a scheduling conflict when, when Biden came to Atlanta But I think her national profile that she has built while she is returning to run for governor of Georgia in 2022 sort of gave her the opportunity to return her focus to the state and sort of the rest of her agenda for the state and could have used a response to Governor Kemp's uh, state of the state address or even just his priorities generally at the beginning of this legislative session Um, you know, that could have been an opportunity for her to, to put herself back into the state conversation on issues other than voting rights. Um, do you, what are your thoughts on, on whether or not Stacey Abrams should sort of get back into the give and take of politics in Atlanta and, and the issues that are important in this state? Is that, is that something that she should be leveraging this legislative session to do? Well, one thing I I think is interesting is my first response was going to be well abrams isn't actually the nominee yet and it would be kind of inappropriate for her to do it um but then i remember in 2014 i'm pretty sure jason carter was the one that did the response and he was very obviously running for governor at that point i can't remember if he actually announced or not at that point but kind of it was you know the worst kept secret (laughs) for sure that he was going to run and you know maybe there's there's some uh, formality of trying to keep it to someone who's actually in the legislature at the time. I don't know. All, putting all that aside, I found it very interesting, not just with Stacey Abrams, but literally everyone but Brian Kemp has been pretty quiet, or at least I haven't seen stuff from them. I haven't seen anything from David Perdue, who's running against Brian Kemp for the Republican nomination for governor. I haven't heard anything from Herschel Walker. Uh, you know, Obviously, heard more for, from Warnock, but it's usually in the context of what's going on federally. And I haven't heard much from Abrams. Um, I agree that I think there are places that she should 
make her voice heard. I don't know if this is the best one for her because I think she needs to make this pivot to I'm now running for governor from, you know, being the leader of Fairfag and doing all the voting rights work that she's been doing. Like she does need to make a concentrated pivot towards running for governor of Georgia. And I, I don't know when or how she's going to do it or the, the best venue for her to do it. But the thing that I come back to is whatever she does, I think she needs to pick a time and place where she can build the most contrast to, you know, say, hey, folks, this is what the difference will be if you elect me as your governor versus Brian Kemp. And I don't know if his state of the state would have been the best place. Maybe it was, but I, I kind of think that she needs to find a place where she can make the contrast between her and what Governor Kemp is doing very, very clear and really, you know, define the race in the same way that I think President Biden, when he was campaigning for president, had his great opening video of saying that he's battling for the soul of America and that is why he's running. I think Abrams needs that, you know, unifying, defining thing for her campaign. They're like, this is why I'm running for governor. And, you know, I'm going to fight super hard to do X. And I, I haven't heard that from her yet, that clear message. Last time it was definitely, you know, healthcare and having a government that works for people, you know, but she hasn't built that message yet, I think. And so it, it, whenever she does decide to make the contrast, she needs to do that. I mean, to me, the state of the state would have been an excellent venue for her to give a response because of the state of the state from Governor Kemp to me felt like his reelection message. He embraced probably the biggest policy issue that he's going to deal with in this legislative session, which was constitutional carry legislation. And that is legislation that is uh, very polarizing. And then he also, towards the end of his speech, both gave the defense of his approach to COVID-19 that we've heard before about him keeping the state open, protecting lives and livelihoods and defending his approach to that. But he also, you know, put a firm stake in the ground that his agenda has been successful for the state and that he lived up to the promises that he made in the campaign. He said, I fought hard to live up to the commitments I made on the campaign trail and ultimately do the right thing. He laid the marker down in his state of the state that, he had uh, fulfilled the vision of his campaign and and is going to pivot to that being the reason to reelect him. And and that's why I think it it serves as a good opportunity. I also think it would have been a good opportunity because then as these issues progress through the legislative session, it creates a natural hook for Stacey Abrams to continue her response. And the AJC is going to call her on every major issue that gets considered in the legislation in the legislature. And so even without her still being a member of the legislature and remember that when she ran for governor in 2018, she was the leader of Democrats in the state house. So she was a key player in what was going on in Atlanta in the lead up to that campaign. She doesn't have that same luxury this time. And so that's why I think it could have been an opportunity for her to insert herself back into state issues and remind particularly Democrats in Georgia that her vision is a strong contrast to what uh, Governor Kemp has is is proposing and, and working for in this legislative session. Yeah, I don't disagree with that entirely. I think it it depends on what her eventual message is. If 
her message is what you just laid out, then I think you're right that this is probably a lost opportunity for her. But if she goes a slightly different route, and uh, you know, maybe she's waiting for a different moment or maybe not. <laughs> we'll, we'll just see. We'll see how it goes. So speaking of the field uh, of Democrats running for statewide offices in this upcoming election season, um, the AJC reported this week on some dynamics within uh, Democratic politics that Democratic power brokers in the state have basically organized as much as they can to avoid contentious primaries in this upcoming legis- in this upcoming primary season. And that is in stark contrast to what is going on on the Republican side, where you now have a full slate of Trump-backed nominees that are challenging incumbents uh, that are in in less favor with Trump, um, including David Perdue's challenge to Governor Kemp. Um, Luke, the way this this has played out primarily is that both Jen Jordan and Charlie Bailey were leading candidates for the Attorney General's office, and Charlie Bailey recently announced that he was going to end his campaign for Attorney General and move to the Lieutenant Governor's office. Now, there are other Democrats in that race, um, but many of the people who backed Charlie Bailey's campaign for attorney general quickly turned around and backed his campaign for lieutenant governor. And Brian Miller, who's the grandson of uh, former Georgia Governor Zell Miller, dropped his bid for lieutenant governor. He was a part of that race before Charlie Bailey jumped into it, and he dropped out of it. Now, State Representative Eric Allen remains a candidate. I mean, there's a few other Democrats in that race, um, along with some of the other uh, down ballot races. Um, Luke, you are are typically a proponent of competitive primaries and, and what they can do to strengthen the candidates that come out of them. Uh, but the AJC highlighted in, in particular that uh, in the state insurance commissioner race in 2018, Cindy Zeldin, who was a longtime healthcare advocate in the state, was running as a pretty natural fit for that office from a progressive perspective. Um, but she was beaten in that race by somebody who had basically no political profile at all. And so that's sort of one potential downside to competitive primaries. What do you think about this development among Democrats attempting to clear the field? Well, first, I'll argue against your your last point, which, uh, you know, I like Cindy Zelgan. I voted for Cindy Zelgan, but like she just didn't run a race. And there's a lot of people that cycle, especially, who took for granted that they were the natural choice. They were the person that the party recommended. They were the person that had a bunch of endorsements. And so they were wing and they thought that they could just ride the coattails of those endorsements and, you know, Facebook posts being shared among friends and thought that was enough. And it wasn't. And so competitive primaries are good, but you have to actually compete. Yeah. You got to be on the field and actually be doing stuff where, Sure, Cindy Zelgan went to a lot of events and was around in the the party circles and the right places, but she did not, at least to my recollection or to my memory, and it's not just her. There's a bunch of other people who have this problem that cycle, uh, both you know, longtime electeds and folks running for statewide office for the first time that looked like great candidates but did not campaign like great candidates. And so I think that is something you should not take for granted in that conversation that that didn't just happen, you know, in a, in a bubble. It's, it's that they did not fight that campaign out like it was an actual fight and they didn't take their opponent seriously. And so I think that is a reason why those folks lost. Now, regarding this current cycle and people moving around, I, I will be honest, if I was running for att- attorney general right now and Jen Jorgen 
announced that she was running and I saw that, I would I would leave that race too. <laughs> like I don't I don't blame Charlie Bailey for doing that because it's pretty obvious that one, she has an incredibly compelling story and a good argument and is really well prepared for that race and has been thinking about it for a long time and is getting a lot of support. And so if you are someone who is running in, in a competitive primary and you're seeing that coming down the track and you're getting encouraged by your supporters and other people who aren't in, you know, wanting to support you in that race, but would be enthusiastic supporters of you in another race, then like, hell, why not? Like, why not run for lieutenant governor if it's a position that you're interested in and you think you can do a lot of good? Georgia's blessed and cursed with a lot of statewide offices. You know, there's some states that don't have that many. And, you know, we have, we have a lot of really important statewide offices. And so I don't take it as necessarily a bad thing, especially this early, because it is still pretty early, um, for folks to be moving around a little bit and, you know, figuring out where uh, they think they're they're a better fit and you know taking a honest look at the field because it's not like charlie bailey is going into the lieutenant governor's racing everyone else dropped out all the other folks who've been running for that position are still there with the exception of brian miller who i don't know why he was running in the first place uh but you know god, god bless l miller and him paying for my school and all but you know i, I he hasn't really done much in democratic politics to my knowledge I'm, I, you know I, I hope i'm not missing some giant contribution he's given um but it, you know, it, it just makes sense to me uh, for him to do that, especially on like a very individual level. <laughs> like it makes a lot of sense. Like I would have done that if, if I had a bunch of supporters and, you know, people supporting my opponent in one race saying like, Hey man, like, I think you're a great fit for this other office. I actually did that in young Dems one time <laughs> I, I switched races. So, you know, I, I understand the sentiment. Um, so the thing I think to take away from that though, is that we're trying to be intentional about building good slates. And I think the really important thing to do is to balance the impulse to coordinate people where you're trying to get everyone else out of the race versus when you're trying to balance out the tickets. Because what you wouldn't want to have happen in a hypothetical situation is, you know, have... Stacey Abrams, Jen Jurgen, Charlie Bailey, and, you know, three or four other great candidates all fight for governor and then have nobody running for all these other offices that had a statewide profile, that had the ability to raise money, that had the ability to actually prosecute those races and potentially win them. And so I, I'm, I'm happy that the, there's at least some intentionality of trying to spread the love around to these other positions. And to find people that have the fundraising capability and profile to potentially win them. And, you know, I, I've just said a lot of nice things about Charlie Bailey and his decision here. I don't know if I'm going to vote for him in that race because, you know, there's a lot of people in there and I haven't had a chance to look at everybody and it's early days and, you know, they haven't had a chance to flesh out what they want to do with those positions. But I think having, you know, someone like Jen Jurgen who very clearly wants the position is probably going to win it and him moving out of the way is, is fine and it, it's not abnormal when there's this many people running for this many positions for there to be some shifting around i just hope that this does not result in a bunch of people who have been running in those races you know all of their support drying up i i it would be better for charlie bailey or or whoever wins the lieutenant governor's race for you know eric allen who's also running for lieutenant governor 
it's better for him to have a tough opponent and for him to actually campaign around the state and talk to people and beat Charlie Bailey. He will be a better candidate. He will be a better nominee if he is able to do that. And so I I don't think in this situation, at least right now, it's bad uh, because I think it just made sense both for the individuals involved, but also if you're looking at the slate as a whole and where you had really strong contenders, I, I think this shifting around uh, is good. And I'm happy that also part of this conversation was not just moving some people around who were already running, but also recruiting folks to run for other important positions. They recruited the chair of the Gwinnett County School Board, Everton Blair, to run for state school superintendent, which is an incredibly important position. And so I'm happy to see that we're trying to make a strong ticket. And that is the goal uh, as much as just trying to coordinate some people. Uh, it, you know, I, I, I think overall that impulse is, is, is good. And we'll you know, see how it plays out and if these new folks in these new races win them or not. But either way, making the field as a whole more competitive, I think it's good. Well, and the other dynamic to consider too is um, particularly if none of these primaries now lead to runoffs, it seems likely that um, most of the statewide Republican primaries may land in runoffs and those will be in what I think either July or August. And so you get through the first uh, almost three quarters of this year with Republicans having a, uh, a contest about who can be the most loyal to Trump, which is probably going to continue to be the most important issue on that side of the aisle having that contest all the way through the runoffs of the Republican primaries and, and Democrats having a lot of runway to just focus on their message. Um, so that's another dynamic that potentially gets set up with that. Luke, let's move on here and talk about uh, what's going on in um, some interesting local issues um, that I think both have a particular relevance to um, this larger discussion over voting rights and access to the ballot um, in the the health of our democracy generally. Um, one that is particularly local for us, the Republicans in the athens Clark County legislative delegation uh, proposed a map, a redistricting map of the uh, commission seats here in athens Clark County that results in uh, three of the most progressive commissioners uh, that Athens has, Tim, Den- Tim Denson, Russell Edwards, and Melissa Link, all of them will be prohibited from running for re-election by the map that state legislative Republicans are considering. That is because uh, there is a a staggered election calendar for the mayor for the commission seats here in Athens. The even seats run in one cycle. The odd numbered seats run in another cycle. And so what they did was they moved those three commissioners to districts where they would not be able to run in this next cycle and instead wouldn't be able to run until 2024. Uh, Our friend Spencer Fry, he proposed a compromise map that would have achieved some of the objectives that Republicans were considering, but also would not have resulted in this chaos of preventing three sitting commissioners from running for reelection when they were scheduled to. Uh, but notably, what happened in, in both cases, in the map that the athens Clark County Commission originally considered, and then the 
other map that was offered by Spencer Fry, who's a state representative and the only Democrat in the athens Clark County delegation. The commission could not come to unanimous come to a unanimous agreement on what to do with the commission map. And I, I don't fully understand the implications. I believe it is just rules within the delegation in athens Clark County, but the lack of unanimity by the local commissioners means that the state delegation has a little bit more runway to make whatever changes they want to make. Um, and so it's possible that state Republicans are going to create chaos in the, uh, athens Clark County Commission. Local politics is a you know, bare-knuckle street fight kind of business, and this is an example of why people hate politics, because there are lots of ways that they could have drawn these maps, and they tr- chose to draw them in a way that not only went out of its way to eliminate some of you know their political rivals and, you know, not even, you know, people they disagree with, but it also disenfranchises a lot of voters because there's, a, you know, the, how these districts were drawn and the way that they changed the numbers of these districts, it prevents a lot of folks from voting on county commissioners for another two years. And I, I just think that this is the kind of thing that folks hate about politics and it is bad policy because it makes it harder for people to know what district they're in, to who their commissioner is, and I hate the fact that politically there will probably be no consequences for the people who are responsible for making these decisions because of the way that the state has gerrymandered the maps and how hard it is to explain this stuff to voters and to make voters understand what's happening and who is responsible uh, for it. And, you know, I, I just, it, it frustrates me because there are lots of ways to win your argument in the public discourse and going about it in this way is just so frustrating because it is so obviously political, so obviously partisan. And, you know, all in all, it, it doesn't make your argument stronger. It doesn't build more support for you in the public policy, you know, populace. It just, you know, it, it, really, it just feels personal more than anything uh, because it is targeting these individuals and their voters. And I, I hope that this conversation does not stop and that people stay angry about this and, you know, that a good solution comes for the voters of Clark County because that is ultimately who is being hurt by the, you know, these moves. And I, I just wish that this was not the way that they had proceeded in doing this because it is just clearly not the right thing to do. <laughs> just very clearly, like, this is not what anybody thinks is a good, you know, moral, you know, statesman thing to do. This also had some tie-in to another story for me. The state Republican Party nominated a woman named Janice Johnston to the state elections board, and she is somebody who has been a particular critic of the election administration in Fulton County. Um, remember that uh, Senate Bill 202 gives the state uh, the opportunity to take over election administration in a county. And in particular, Fulton County, which is the most heavily Democratic county in the state of Georgia, has been uh, an item of focus for for this power. Um, And she is someone who has had particular criticisms, including elevating some unsubstantiated claims um, during an election audit. 
And these are two separate places. One of these is a very local issue in athens Clark County with the local delegation, the state legislators that represent this area in athens Clark County. The other one is over in Fulton, but it's primarily a decision made by the state Republican Party. And under state law, the state Republican Party gets to have their own representative on the state election board. The state Democratic Party gets that same um, same privilege here in the state. But both of these lend to, I think, making a mockery of the larger argument coming from Republicans about their considerations around election laws and policies. You know, the Republican response to criticism of Senate Bill 202, the big elections law from last year, was that all of these criticisms are overblown. The law makes it easier to vote and harder to cheat. And Republicans are not in the business of, of making it more difficult for people to vote. And all of these criticisms from Democrats about all this was bullshit. But you see continued examples, even after they've been the subject of all this criticism, you see continued examples of them doing things like these shenanigans with the commission districts in, in athens Clark County, uh, putting people who have made unsubstantiated claims and, and supported misinformation and elevated misinformation in positions of power. All of it suggests that, you know, maybe Governor Kemp believes the legislation he signed makes it easier to vote and harder to cheat. But there are a lot of Republicans who are active in state and local politics and in state and local elections issues who are still seeking to use every lever of power to basically make democracy chaos. And to me, I mean, it's just endlessly frustrating that, um, you know, that this continues to go on. And, um, you know, these are two distinct examples, I think, of that just continued trend that we've talked about for a long time. Yeah, I agree. And it's just, it's so frustrating that they're using these concerns that they have ginned up to make the system the exact thing they're arguing that the system currently is. It's just, it's very hypocritical and very poisonous for the democracy. And it's, it's frustrating that there's no consequences for them, at least thus far. I mean, again, this is the same week that, um, you know, some, some investigative reporting uncovered documents that when a uh, group of Republicans met at the state capitol on the day that the electors were going to be certified for the 2020 election, that um, a group of Republicans organized to send their own slate of electors to Washington as a part of uh, several states that did that, um, several state Republican organizations that that organized that, um, that would have supported the legal efforts that they were trying to consider related to overturning the uh, results of the election. Um, it was also uncovered that uh, President Trump had an unsigned executive order where he was considering the possibility of having the National Guard seize voting machines. Now, all this, I mean, you know, a lot of these things didn't play out. Joe Biden is our current president. They were ultimately unsuccessful. But it, it's just a continued demonstration of this impulse in the Republican Party to uh, erode our democracy. And, and I think it's useful to, to point these out whenever they pop up. Lastly here, Luke, as, as we come to the end, the AJC reported this week that the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, she's requesting a special grand jury as she investigates former President Trump and his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Um, this is not really a story I've kept up with. Can you just tell us what's going on? 
Well, you know, so many things happened in 2020. It's hard to hard to remember all of them. So one of it's the it's been busy. <laughs> it's been you know it was a busy year. Um, if you can't remember one of the things that happened in 2020, which was uh you know Donald Trump's perfect phone call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger when he asked him to find the 11,780 votes Trump needed to win. And so in response to that, um, Fannie Willis is trying to impanel a special grand jury, and what the reasons that she said that she needs this grand jury is that a special purpose grand jury can be impaneled by the court for any time period required in order to accomplish its investigation, which will likely exceed a normal grand jury term. Second, the special purpose grand jury will be empowered to review this matter and this matter only with an investigatory focus appropriate to the complexity and facts and circumstances involved. And third, the sitting grand jury would not be required to attempt to address this matter in addition to its normal due. And so she is early in this investigation, but it seems like one of the principal reasons why she is requesting this grand jury is one, that it is a complicated case and would require uh, a lot of detail, but also a lot of the key witnesses, including state, you know, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has said, I will not talk to you until you get me a subpoena that says I have to. And so this would be a vehicle for her to get the subpoena so she can say, oh, you actually do have to talk to me. And uh, it makes sense uh, for her to do this. And I, you know, it's it's kind of hard to do this investigation if no one is willing to talk to you. And since so many of the other offices that uh, could could be pursuing this investigation are conflicting out because they are witnesses <laughs> to uh, this investigation and the the subjects that she will be covering. It, it, it makes sense, and it's early days still, but this, at least to me, indicates that she is seriously considering that there might be a case here and needs to get more information uh, to, to make that evaluation, and, you know, that they will... Uh, th- this will not result in an indictment. This special grand jury is just to uh, evaluate the evidence, help them to get the subpoenas, and will they will give a recommendation, but it's not, uh, you know, not an indictment. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, how this progresses and uh, what uh, Willis is able to learn. All right. Well, we covered a lot of ground today, so I think we're going to leave it there for today. We will be back again to talk about the latest developments in legislative session and more from 2022 campaign season. But for now, we will let you go. Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Uh, Happy to be here and go dogs. Go dogs. We're still the national champions. I can't take you away from us. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.